Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, the COVID metrics that we've all been following so closely for about a year are really starting to turn uh, consistently positive in terms of hospitalizations, ICU beds, um, as well as inoculations. Let's get the latest uh, here in New York City with Dr. Stephen Corwin. He is the president and chief executive officer of New York Presbyterian Hospital joining us on the phone. Uh, Dr. Corwin, thanks so much for joining us here Give us the on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground kind of view from the New York Presbyterian Hospital. What are you and your team seeing right now as it relates to the pandemic and as it relates to vaccinations? Well, in terms of the pandemic, we've not really seen it uh, hit its, its, its peak on this second surge here in New York and, and come on its way down. So at the peak, we had about 2,600 patients within our system. We were overwhelmed. Uh, we're at about 960 patients now, as you mentioned, less in the ICU, uh, a lower mortality rate, but it's still pretty serious, yep. and we've yet to seen the, uh, see the effects of uh, the more contagious variants, whether it's South African or, or the, English, the British variant, and, and we're anxiously awaiting that. Plus, you, we've had 11-plus months of this, and so... Uh, staff are stretched. Uh, you know, it's it's been a long haul. So I, I'm very appreciative of, of what our frontline staff has been through and, and what they're doing now. The the biggest issue for us is staffing uh, because in the pandemic in March, April, May, we were able to pull from other parts of the country. That's not the case now. So not as bad as it was before. Still serious. And we're hoping with the vaccinations and mass vaccination, we can we can see our way through in in the spring into the early summer. Uh, in terms of vaccinations, we've vaccinated all of our frontline employees. Uh, we've overcome a lot of vaccine hesitancy, uh, and that requires a lot of education, a lot of uh, a lot of one-on-one -on -one, uh, discussions. Uh, and we saw that at the site that we put in place uh, at the Armory up in Washington Heights. Uh, initially, 25% of the vaccinations were coming from the immediate community, Central North Harlem, Washington Heights, Inwood, South Bronx. Now that's up to 80%. And we've worked with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, made appointments by phone, made sure that we had translators. You know, if you think about it, um, typically if you're trying to overcome vaccine hesitancy, uh, you know, an online appointment system tends to favor uh, uh, people who uh, are, are digitally uh, proficient and so on. So we had to change our strategy to make sure that we were dealing with the communities of color and underserved communities. These are phenomenal discoveries, Doctor. Thank you for coming on and telling us all of this. Just on the people that are coming into the hospitals, are the symptoms very similar to what we saw back in March or April? Or have they changed a little bit? Has this disease changed how it affects people? Yeah, it, the, the symptoms are very similar. We're better at treating it. Uh, the use of steroids, the use of remdesivir, the use of the monoclonal antibodies if people are not too sick and before they come into the hospital. So the mortality rate uh, in the spring, if you got admitted to the hospital, was 20% to zero. Uh, now that mortality rate is about 5%, um, still um, horrendous, uh, but much less. And a lot of that is due to um, uh, better supportive care. 
Uh, it's hard to think, though, that it's, it's, um, it's, it's less contagious or less virulent. I will say that with masking and social distancing, the possibility is that the viral loads that patients have when they come in may be far less than what we saw in the spring, but it's still really too uh, speculative on my part to say that that's the definitive reason. Certainly, we're seeing it in younger people. They tend to do better. Uh, than the uh, frail elderly. So that also plays into it. So doctor, as we get more and more vaccinations available to the marketplace, talk to us about about some of those um, concerns that you get from uh, folks that are are reticent about taking the vaccine. What are some of the key drivers there? What do you have to overcome? Because the, the science seems pretty clear. Yeah, I think there are a few things. First of all, if if you're a person of color, uh, like it or not, there's been a long he- uh, history of experimentation on people yep. of color dating way, way back. So that's sure. one issue. The second issue is social media and a lot of the misinformation out there, whether it's anti-vaxxers uh, or whether it's people that basically saying that COVID is a hoax and, and it's not really that bad. Uh, The third thing is that a lot of people say, you know, I'm not sure I want to take it because it was developed too fast. And you've got to uh, remind people that the messenger RNA platform, for example, has been in development for well over a decade, that the other platforms that are being used are also well established, uh, and that... By purchasing the, uh, by pre-purchasing doses and by compressing the time frame of the various clinical trials and supporting those, it enabled something that would take a few years uh, to take a year. And I, I think it's an enormous scientific achievement, but you've got to overcome that um, so for people to say, well, I'm not sure I want to take it because it was rushed into development. So you've really got to go through that. And I think it's important to point out that it's not live, right? You're not injecting coronavirus into people like some other vaccines work. This is not that. A very good point. I'm sorry that I didn't mention it. So thank you for bringing it up. The messenger RNA vaccine is not live. So and it's not even DNA. The um, inactivated viruses are just vectors. So you can't get coronavirus from the vaccines. Uh, the Nova vaccine is actually Novavax vaccine is actually just a recombinant protein. So the notion that you can get coronavirus from it also needs to be dispelled. You can't. Now, if you have an immune reaction to it, um, that's a positive sign, and some people get. Uh, mild fever, headaches, uh, muscle aches, etc. That's actually a good thing. It shows you that your immune system is working. Many people, of course, have no side effects whatsoever from either the first or the second dose, uh, if it's the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. I'm very encouraged by the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because it's one dose. Uh, it doesn't have to be frozen. And, you know, as you've heard from Dr. Fauci and others, this is a worldwide problem. We have to stop the spread worldwide. Otherwise, more and more of these variants will come out and inevitably uh, these variants will self-select to be more virulent and problematic for us. So we've got to get a worldwide effort in place. And I'm very uh, thankful that the the U.S. government has recognized that. and, And in the Biden administration, they are participating in the worldwide effort. We're out of time, doctor, but in 10 seconds, can you tell us, do you have enough PPE now? Has that problem been solved? It has been. Oh. Uh, more than enough. So everyone should rest assured that if you, if you need to come into the hospital, we're, we're A-OK.
That is just fantastic, at least a little bit of good news. In fact, a lot of good news in that interview. So, yeah. Doctor, thank you very, very much for giving us your time. Uh, Dr. Stephen Corwin is New York Presbyterian President and CEO joining us this morning. And, Paul, I think a, a lot to take away from there, yeah. including that the vaccines are working and that many communities that would have been hesitant have embraced this thanks to the good work of Dr. Corwin and his staff. Yeah, that's exactly what I took away. Uh, some hard work to be done here, but it, it's well worth it. The good people at Crane Shares have done something very interesting. They have brought out a product that is going to give U.S. investors a chance to take part in Shanghai's Nasdaq-style tech board. So let's bring in Brendan Ahern, who's Chief Investment Officer of Crane Shares, to tell us more. Brendan, what is this product? Hey, good morning, Bonnie. Uh, so we recently li- recently listed K-Star, the Crane Shares Shanghai Stock Exchange Star 50 Index, which provides access to a unique board within the Shanghai Stock Exchange. It's really a growth innovation, this science and technology board. So these are very growth-geared companies that historically uh, have really not been accessible to U.S. investors. So we're you know, obviously very excited to bring the first Starboard ETF outside of China to investors here in the United States. So, uh, Brendan, how is this Star 50 index, how is it different from the MSCI China A index? So great question, Paul. You know, the China A is really large and mid-cap stocks listed on the main board of both the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges. In order to list on the main board of those two exchanges, you have to be profitable. So, so they created two years ago this star board, which there is no profitability requirement. And the idea is to give these growth innovative companies access to capital via the IPO process. So, so no profitability requirement, much more growth geared companies for that reason. Right. So we should be aware of that. Brendan, remind me, wasn't there a, a huge amount of volatility? And isn't there generally a huge amount of volatility in these types of stocks in China? I mean, in general, emerging market equities have a higher standard deviation than, say, the S&P 500. And certainly, you know, yes, this is a, a, a concentration of 50 securities. So, so th- it's, it's something that one of the risks investors should be aware of. Uh, is that this is going to be more volatile than, say, you know, KBA is our MSCI China A, almost 500 stocks. This is a tenth of that, and, and just being within emerging markets, that, that, you know, that volatility comes, comes with it. So give us a sense, uh, Brennan, kind of the star board, you know, how, when was it formed? How big is it? Uh, does it trade well? So launched back in 2019, uh, this index was first created. So there were up to over 200 securities on the starboard today, represented 40% of all mainland IPOs last year. The companies have raised uh, $44 billion. Uh, but so this, this market is big. You know, market cap is up to almost $300 billion, over 200 million shares trading daily of the underlying securities. Can you give us an idea of what are the securities that take precedence in it? Or are they you know, equally uh, dispersed through, throughout the index? Well, we know semiconductors is a big push in China today. So semiconductors is just you know, basically a third of, of the K-Star ETF. But you have software, biotech, um, you know, you know, really, again, these are the kind of growth, if you think about all of, all of the kind of innovative catch terms that get thrown out there, if it's AI, big data. Again, because these are growth companies, they need access to capital. 
to grow their businesses. Again, very, very skewed to these tech-oriented, semi-software, uh, biotechnology. So is this Starboard, is it kind of analogous a little bit to the NASDAQ 100? Or, or what's kind of the analogy here? Is it the Russell 2000? Just to give you know, our listeners a sense of kind of what this feels like, this board. Yeah, I, I definitely, Paul, I, I think, you know, if, you, you know, investors here in the U.S. are familiar with, the, you know, QQQ, NASDAQ 100. You know, K-Star really represents, you know, the largest names within this tech board. And, you know, if you go back, I always think about, you know, NASDAQ in the 1970s was really founded on providing a cheaper, easier mm. way for growth and technology companies in the United States to access capital that the NYSE back back then uh, was really more large cap companies, high listing standards, and, and, and you know, NASDAQ kind of carved out you know, what's grown to be a tremendous business. Very similar situation analogous to the Star 50 board. How do investors in this need to consider the PBOC as a potential player for their companies? So you know, these companies are, are tend not to be financial companies. So if we, if we think about some of the, the issues Ant Group ran into and in having recently, recently to be reclassified as a financial holding company, these companies are not in the financial sector, very unlikely to fall under the purview of the PBOC. So the Starboard, um, Brendan, formed in 2019. How's the performance been since then? So it's 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 done well, you know. You know, it's. Uh, let me just pull this up here. You know, just for Bloomberg Terminal users, uh, which I'm I'm definitely one of. I'm a big there fan you of um, uh, you know can't can't you know crane shares. We can't run our business uh, without uh, without our Bloomberg Terminal. So I'm just going to pull this up here using the great COMP function, which I know users are very familiar with. So since inception, uh, the Starboard is up. Uh, just just about just over 51 percent now relative to those mid cap and large caps that we hold within KBA, those securities over the same time period uh, are lagging just slightly. So 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 K Star uh, from a historical performance has been outperforming uh, KBA, but again that's that's up 50 percent over the over the last 13 months. So uh, you know without without question, you know obviously the V shaped recovery in China we're seeing a very yep. strong uh, domestic. Uh, performance there. Hey, Brendan, uh, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that as always. Kind of another way for investors to play some of the faster growing uh, companies uh, in China. Brenda Ahern, Chief Investment Officer of Crane Shares based in New York City, uh, joining us on the phone. So, Vani, again, just another opportunity for another vehicle, I guess, for investors to play some of these uh, fast growing companies uh, coming out of China. Yes, definitely. You want to be aware of what you're doing with this one, but yep. it does seem like a very, very interesting one. The Crane Shares SSE Star Market 50 Index. ETF ticker KSTR. Well, initial jobless claims did fall last week, but really only by 33,000. We still saw 779,000 initial jobless claims in the last week of January. And continuing claims are still at 4.59 million. So, yes, de declines, but really we should put this into perspective. So let's bring in Yelena Sholyateva, who's Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Yelena, how should we read the fact that 779,000 people made first-time claims for unemployment insurance last week? So 
uh, two things uh, here I would uh, really like to highlight. So first of all, of course, the decline in jobless claims is an encouraging signal hinting at a possible inflection point. So, uh, you know, three weeks uh, in a row of declines come at a, uh, some states are gradually loosening restrictions. So that might be a positive sign. On the other hand, uh, we are in a period of really high seasonal uh, volatility. So uh, we had a, a holiday season uh, when usually the, there are a lot of extra jobs uh, which um, you know, companies fire workers uh, in the consecutive months. So in January, we see a lot of uh, job losses usually. And uh, seasonal factors just simply, uh, it's very difficult to make adjustments at this point when uh, all the uh, regular seasonal patterns are distorted. So maybe there's just not uh, that many people that companies are firing right now that uh, may be skewing the numbers to uh, lower side. But at the same time, as as you said, there's still a lot of unemployed people. And uh, unfortunately, the length of unemployment is rising rapidly. So uh, tomorrow we're going to get another jobs uh, report uh, for the month of January. We expect a slightly negative reading. But um, uh, the question is uh, how we are going to proceed from here. So, yes, we know there are a lot of vulnerable industries still, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, people in leisure hospitality are still suffering. They cannot go back to work. But uh, on the other hand, we have seen a lot of other industries that uh, ramped up hiring slightly. So that is a positive sign, and uh, that's uh, what we will be focusing on in tomorrow's report. All right, Yelena, as we think about tomorrow's report, um, you know, we think about some of those job losses, and you mentioned leisure, uh, entertainment. Some of those Presumably, a lot of those are going to come back when, as the economy reopens throughout this year. What's the concern as for more structural unemployment um, that maybe companies kind of restructured during the pandemic that, in, in reality, in, when we do reopen, that a lot of those folks won't be hired back? So uh, that's, that's a, a very interesting question indeed, because, yes, I do believe that a lot of service jobs will uh, get back as soon as we uh, have the pandemic under control. We cannot completely defeat it probably in, in the near term, but at least we're going to get it under control, and that's when uh, the services spending, uh, a lot of service jobs will come back. But um, at the same time, uh, you know, a lot of industries adapted to operating under new circumstances uh, with a small amount of people and uh that will probably weigh on uh, uh, further growth in uh, in uh, in jobs. Uh, another uh, interesting point, and that is uh, something that, that the Fed is really concerned about, uh, and a lot of economists talk about that too, is that a lot of people left the labor force, just simply stopped looking for a job for various reasons. Either they're discouraged, they will find a job, or uh, they stay home for family reasons to watch the kids, uh, do their homework uh, remotely, and, and so on and so forth. So this is a, a big chunk of uh, personal income that will be lost going forward. And uh, it will take a lot of time to restore this if if we can restore it. So if you look at the previous business cycle, it took uh, a decade uh, uh, to push the participation rate uh, uh, to the highs that we saw. So I think uh, we should also consider these uh, things when we talk about unemployment and um, jobs. 
We'll have a new Labour secretary, uh, former mayor of Boston. What can he do as Labour secretary to change how the labour market looks over the next couple of years? Well, <laughs> we, I uh, am an economist and probably not in the right place to give advice to uh, uh, people from administration. But uh, I think it's just, uh, you know, we need to make sure that people who need uh, help, who need unemployment insurance, get it. And for that, we really need uh, good statistics. We need uh, to make sure the system is in place so that they have access to uh, proper um, you know, uh, payments and uh, uh, fast and in-time payments. So that would help, I guess. Elena, thank you so much. We appreciate that, as always, uh, on those job numbers today and getting ready for Jobs Day tomorrow. Yelena Shuletova, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us uh, on the phone. And again, Vani, the jobless claims numbers today, a good trend, yeah, but boy, that's a high number by historical norms. Yeah, I'm hanging my hat on the fact that Yelena said it might be a turning point, because if that is actually the case, then we can take more you know, joy out of these numbers than at first glance, because I suppose you have to have a turning point before you have a major improvement, right, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of just puts the pressure on once again, uh, our friends in Washington, D.C. for fiscal stimulus as the negotiations uh, there continue between the Democrats and Republicans. Hopefully we'll get some breakthroughs soon. Now let's turn to Eric Balchunas, who's Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We have our weekly conversation with Eric. And Eric, we want to ask you about the client exodus from Janus Funds today. I mean, obviously the Reddit trade in a moment, but why is Janus Henderson suddenly losing major clients? Yeah, I mean, it's a big one. 17% of the ownership. Uh, looks like the stock, at least last I checked, was down 6%. Overall, the stock has, it's okay. It's up 28% over the past five years. Although that is underperforming its benchmark of mid-caps, um, but you've got worse. You know, Franklin Templeton or Ben Franklin uh, Ben is the ticker is down 22% in that time period, but BlackRock's up 96%, which speaks to the big theme here, which is if you are selling sort of high-cost active mutual funds and that's your main, um, you know, source of revenue, um, your organic growth outlook is horrible. Uh, the flows are coming out of there. Janice has seen outflows. Um, all told, active mutual funds have seen about over $500 billion in outflows last year. That said, the assets are at all-time highs because the market continues to give uh, good asset growth, and it's enough to offset the outflows. So I just looked. Janus assets are $400 billion. That is a record for them. So mm. the problem is it's not organic. It's um, you know, mirage-ish, if you will, and that's probably what this, this – the writing is on the wall, and I think that's probably what – the owner, uh, the person, the uh, company selling is looking at and thinking, well, it's fine now, but I, I want to look elsewhere for the future. Yeah, Eric, when I was on the sell side, you know, two of the biggest, smartest accounts that you had to have a good relationship with on the buy side were Janus Funds out of Denver, some of the smartest growth investors, large cap growth investors, and then the Henderson Funds in, in London, one of the leading accounts in London. These two get together, yet they still can't stem the tide is just this just because all a lot of assets are going into your world the world of etfs it's that it's really the vanguard effect um you know in 2008 in particular i think a lot of people were dismayed that their active mutual fund didn't do any better than the market and they're paying these fees then you had report after report from s p versus index versus active that show active can't outperform and then the internet 
really hit. And you, if you chart the internet growth with the rise of passive, it's almost perfectly correlated. So as information got out, blogs were posted and people were like, you know what, this isn't really working for me. So they started going to cheap passive. And so you've seen trillions flow over there and trillions come out of active. It's really a game changer. The, the other thing we are seeing though is Janus, as you said, was a big deal. In fact, in the 90s, they were taking in like 70% of all the flows. They were kind of the vanguard of their day, as you pointed yep. out. Um, but now what you have is, is ARC is sort of doing that. Uh, that's a fun company that's active, high active share. Uh, so it's not over for active. It's just new ones are being born. And I think the poor, um, I use the word barbell. Uh, most of the money is going to cheap beta or shiny objects. And a lot of what Janice has is sort of in the middle. Yeah. It's kind of high cost, but not too different than the benchmark. That's the no man's land right now. And of course, we should mention, you know, Nelson Peltz's involvement in all of this as well. There was an activist shareholder in Tryon Fund Management with a 9.9% stake in Janice Henderson. So he would have had something to do with this too. Right, yeah, Eric? absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I think, yeah. um, you know, Janice is one of those companies that they have tried to come out with some ETFs. They actually acquired a uh, Velocity Shares, which was the maker of TVIX. That was a weird acquisition, but they do have some talented people over there. Uh, they have a couple ETFs that are doing okay, um, but it, it's going to be uh, rough, I think, in the next 10 years. What they need to really worry about, though, is a bear market. As long as the market keeps giving, all of this can just kick the can down the road. Uh, the organic problem will just keep put off and put off. But in a bear market, it could get ugly. In March alone, that's one month, we had a little sample of this. Active mutual funds saw $350 billion in outflows in a month. Wow. So you can imagine if you, if you got a year of that, it could get really bad. So we tell active and uh, those kind of managers that they should fear a bear market almost worse than the Vanguard effect. Although the Vanguard effect is somewhat like uh, termites eating away at yep. the inside of their yeah, growth. And when the bear market comes, the house will fall down, I think, uh, pretty easily. Oh, that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. It's, that is tough I'm to be sorry. on the buy side I, these yeah, days. Yeah, it, it's tough. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it is just a tough time for this business. But again, there are uh, there are right. new forms of active that are rising. Uh, so All right. we, we look to those. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. You always help us put it into perspective. Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.